You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 102. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. And so, in order to convey to each generation a message of wellness, we need, we need to craft the message to them in a way that will connect with their core values. Hello, veggie lovers. Happy Sunday. I just want to tell you that I love you so much. I don't know why I'm so emotional. I've been so emotional this week, but I just got done interviewing Chuck Underwood for this very unique podcast episode. And I just feel so warm and fuzzy inside. And I just have so much love for everybody and all of the different situations and events that have happened in their lives that have shaped them into who they are. This episode on generational studies is very unique. It's very different, but I love having a podcast and I love having the ability to bring you knowledge, to bring you information that I feel benefits me because I think it could benefit you as well. Even if it's a little bit off the beaten path, even if it's a little bit different than what you're used to hearing. I hope that you will stick with me and that you will listen to this episode because I think that you will get a lot out of it. It's not going to be everything. It just barely scratches the surface, but it's so valuable. But before I get to talking more about Chuck and generational studies, if you have not already, please sign up for my newsletter. I would love to get you on there so that I can send you a weekly newsletter that has lots of goodies in it, has special things that other people don't see, some reflections, and the first, you'll be the first to find out about special events and things like that. So to sign up, you can text the word FIBER, F-I-B-E-R, to 66866, or you can go to dryami.com, D-O-C-T-U-R-Y-A-M-I.com, forward slash sign up. In addition, if you haven't already grabbed a copy of my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, I would love it if you did. It's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook at your favorite online bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and a lot of them. They're, it's available there. I want to read you a five-star review from Griselda Martinez Cooper. I just have to say it. That's my mom. I love you, mom. You're my biggest fan. Thank you for writing a review for my book. She titled it Eat Healthy and Intuitively. This book contains amazing information. So happy to find a book that encourages children to eat healthy and intuitively. Enjoyed reading it and I recommend. 
thanks, mom. And thank you for reading it. She's also going to listen to the audiobook because she really is my biggest fan and she listens to everything I do. Ironically, I talk about her a lot. So hopefully I don't hurt her feelings, but I love you, mom, no matter what. Remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. And if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, consult a doctor. Well, this episode really doesn't have to do with uh, any specific guidance on nutrition, but more so understanding of what shapes our ideas about nutrition, which is our generation. I first heard Chuck Underwood present at the Yakima Town Hall. So here in Yakima, we have a speakers series. So six to nine speakers a year come, and they're really special from all over the world. And we get to learn cool things. And I love stuff like this because I love learning. And I love especially learning things I'm not immersed in because, you know, I spend so much time reading everything I can about nutrition, lifestyle habits. So this pushes me out of my usual world and forces me to think about things in a different way, which I think is valuable. And I probably don't do it as much as I should or as much as I could to enrich my life and to really help me think in ways that I'm not used to thinking. But this town hall was by Chuck Underwood and he talked about generations and it impacted me. I, I cried during the presentation, I actually cried during this interview several times. My eyes teared up because it's, wow, this stuff is just so valuable to understand yourself, the circumstances of your upbringing, your formative years, as Chuck likes to talk about it. The formative years, these are childhood when we were in elementary, junior high, and high school. What was happening in the world? What was happening in society during that time? that shaped your ideas, that shaped your beliefs, that shaped your values? And how do those things shape how you make decisions in the world? Whether it's about your health or your well-being, whether it's about your job, your relationships, it's so important and it makes so much sense. So I am so happy to bring you Chuck Underwood on this episode. So Chuck is one of the half dozen people who pioneered and then popularized the field of generational study and with it, generational business strategies. More than three decades of full-time research and applications and his original principles are permanent part of this discipline. He is consistently evaluated by audiences throughout America, Canada, and Europe as the world's best presenter of generational strategies. His 2018 book is the most comprehensive presentation of generational business and personal life dynamics ever published and is entitled America's Generations in the Workplace, Marketplace, and Living Room. And after I'm done recording this, I'm going to order myself a copy. Chuck is the star of the PBS national television miniseries, America's Generations with Chuck Underwood, the first such series in the history of national television. He is the founder and principal of Ohio-based generation consulting firm, The Generational Imperative, Inc. He consults and trains business, government, education, religion, and other institutions on a full list of generational strategies. And he has pioneered breakthrough programs in generational behavioral healthcare strategy and single generation leadership training. 
So his website is genimperative.com. And again, his book is America's Generations in the Workplace, Marketplace, and Living Room. To get in touch with him, go to his website, genimperative.com, which I will also list in the show notes. So that is Chuck. We're going to talk about generations. Don't worry. He's going to tell you what they are, how they are decided upon, and why they are important, and how they can apply to our beliefs and our choices when it comes to health and well-being. Veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here. I really hope that you savor and that you enjoy this conversation with Chuck Underwood. Chuck Underwood, what a pleasure to have you on Veggie Doctor Radio to talk about a topic that probably most people aren't really talking about. But when I saw you at the Yakima Town Hall, I, I was just fascinated by everything that you were saying. And I felt immediately that the more of us learned about generations and the differences in generations, that I really feel like we can apply that to our lives and that could help us. So thank you so much for being a guest today. Dr. Yami, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's just start out at the beginning. What is a generation? How is it defined? A generation is an age group that during the first roughly 20 years of their lives, the formative years, they shared similar times and teachings that molded in them similar core values and those core values that are molded in the formative years tend to guide our decision-making for life, even though, yeah, we'll evolve, we'll change, but those core values will remain largely intact. And any time in American life or in any other country, and generations tend to be pretty nation-specific, but at any time that either the times or the teachings or both change in a significant way and in a widespread coast-to-coast, top-to-bottom way, it means that young kids coming of age in those different times and teachings will mold different core values and thus become our next generation. Wow. It's just so fascinating because I had just never, I mean, I knew about generations. We always talk about our, you know, each person talks about their own generations. There's jokes and things like that. But whenever you explained it that day, the way that you did, it just suddenly hit me. And then I realized we have generations, just like you said, that are specific to each country, because in each country, we have different events that happen. Except for recently, we've had something that's happened in the entire world. So I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. But first of all, can you tell us, how does understanding these generational differences help us in our work, with our businesses, but also with our friends and our family? Well, first of all, we do not become a member of a generation until we finish the classroom years. And for most of us, that's either age 18 out of high school, or if we're fortunate enough to go to college, roughly early 20s. The reason we don't join a generation until then, because the classroom years 
are the formative years when we can change a core value in a nanosecond. And we are very sensitive to times and teachings during that time. Once we leave the classroom years, we now possess a set of core values that by and large will be with us for life. And here's how we all use that. Generational core values influence our consumer choices, our career decisions, and our on-the-job performance, our lifestyle preferences, our personal relationships, and our professional relationships. So if business and government and education and even religion understand generational core values, they can then get into the heads of each generation with which they are trying to communicate, to sell a product or a service, to educate in a classroom, to teach faith to, um, and in government to help our elected leaders to provide the best possible service to their constituents. So anything in American life that involves people, we need to understand generational dynamics. Yeah, amazing. Well, and another part too is because I'm a physician and a health coach is delivering healthcare, right? So how can it apply in that way? Each generation had a significantly different formative years experience with medicine, science, nutrition, wellness. And so in order to convey to each generation a message of wellness, we need, we need to craft the message to them in a way that will connect with their core values. It's called developing a generational gearbox that enables us to shift gears quickly and accurately when we are communicating with one generation and then the next and the next and the next. Mm -hmm. And can it be difficult because, uh, can you say again how many generations we currently have right now in the United States? And I know that there can be really big differences between our oldest generations and our new emerging generations. But if I'm Generation X and I'm trying to convey something to somebody that's in an earlier generation, uh, can that make communication difficult if I'm not understanding their core values and how they were raised and how healthcare was delivered to them? Yes, it absolutely can make it more difficult. And that's why understanding each generation and their core values help us to hit their hot buttons accurately and connect with them. Cool. We have five living generations of Americans and a, our next generation, a sixth generation, is just now arriving. And you've probably heard the term Generation Z. Unfortunately, there is some very inaccurate generational content floating around out there because this topic, which about a half dozen of us created beginning more than 30 years ago, became very white hot as a topic in the decade of the 2000s. And 
And those of us who had created it took very good care of it. We made sure we were accurate, that we were basing our remarks, our speeches, and our training seminars on legitimate research. But in the 2010s, because it was hot, a whole bunch of people jumped into it. The mass media jumped into it. And they began slinging around generational content that is absolutely not accurate. With that said, our next generation is very soon about to arrive in adulthood. There's no such thing as a 16-year-old member of any generation or 12-year-old or 2-year-old. We join generations after the school years. The oldest generation is the GI generation the greatest generation. They were immortalized by a book by Tom Brokaw. They are the generation that right now in this coronavirus nightmare in which we find ourselves, that many, many people are mentioning in this regard. They're saying the GI generation was born into two world wars, and those two world wars were separated by the Great Depression, which makes our economic uncertainties today look small by comparison. And yet this generation came together as a nation. They developed the highest personal principles. And when World War I and then the Great Depression and then World War II ended, the GI generation, instead of feeling sorry for itself, or now wanting to say this world owes me something, instead chose to build the greatest nation in the history of the planet. So they are this remarkable generation that no subsequent generation has ever lived up to. Just behind them and trying to follow that act is the silent generation. They are mid-70s to early 90s this year. The baby boomers who were born from 1946 to 1964 this year are kind of mid-50s up into their early 70s. Generation X is currently aged late 30s to mid-50s. And our youngest generation at the moment, the millennials, stretch from age 18 up to their late 30s. And again, in a couple of years, we will probably have documented that for three or four consecutive years, America's high school graduates are now demonstrating core values significantly enough different from the millennials that yes, we can declare that our next generation has arrived. It hasn't happened yet, but it's about to. Wow. That is so interesting. So how, so how did you the people that study generations, the researchers in this area, do you just gather up this data based on surveys or based on consumer behaviors? How do you determine that for three or four years, there's been a change? Well, those of us who created this field of study began with absolutely nothing. And I mean a blank sheet of paper. We simply sensed in our guts and in our heads, the generation, and this was back in the 1980s, somehow meant something far more important than anyone recognized. At that time, there was no literature on the subject as a field of study. 
it didn't exist. So we began with nothing. And we scratched and we clawed, first of all, with nothing but theories that were unproven. And then I happened to be trained formally in qualitative research methodology. So I conducted formal research. Some of the others did too. We borrowed from history books and we borrowed from psychology and from sociology. And we, through the 80s and 90s, just started piecing it together. And then American business began to get interested in the very late 90s. And when we knew we were going to be speaking to businesses and to government officials and to higher education and actually training them, we knew then that we had to be absolutely right instead of almost right. And that's when we really began to do our own formal research. It is when research companies started recognizing what we were doing. And sometimes with our guidance, they then did their own formal research. And pretty quickly, by the early 2000s, we had a good solid foundation of research to formally launch this field of study. Wow, that's incredible. Well, thank you for doing that work because I think that having this knowledge and understanding generations can really enrich our lives. So I want to talk a little bit more about health beliefs. And you mentioned the GI generation because they're the oldest going through this coronavirus pandemic. But you also said they're resilient too, right? Because they experienced World War I, World War II, Great Depression. They had so many very important, very strong life events that shaped what they felt about the world. So in general, can you talk a little bit about health beliefs and how it applies to these different generations? Well, the GI generation came of age and it formed its values about medicine and nutrition when there really wasn't much information about medicine and nutrition. Um, there wasn't much science. There certainly was no concept of wellness. The GI generation, very regrettably, because we lost so many of them to cigarettes, and the cigarette industry slaughtered the GI generation. The GIs, by coming of age with two world wars, when there was not enough meat to ship overseas to our troops, and at that time there was no way to keep it refrigerated so that it would arrive fresh. Uh, and then in the Great Depression, meat was expensive. Meat became an exotic food substance back then. And it was something that only the rich people could afford. So the GI generation placed a value, a high value on meat, and specifically red meat, having no idea of its nutritional value or its nutritional damage. In the Great Depression, they had to eat flour and oatmeal. They couldn't sit down like we can today. They couldn't drive to a fast food restaurant. Fast food didn't exist then. And so the GIs with cigarettes developed very bad habits and with nutritional ignorance that wasn't their fault, they ate poorly. 
what really happened with the GIs was, and here's a, a war story in World War II, 16 million American GI generation members fought in World War II. Each month when they were overseas, and if they happened to be captured by the enemy and were in prisoner of war camps, the International Red Cross would send them a small packet that included a toothbrush, a toothpaste, and one pack of cigarettes. Wow. Because the Nazi and the Japanese guards at their prison camps were regularly beating the American troops and their allied troops from other countries, and because American cigarettes tasted better than all other cigarettes, the GI generation members would give up their pack of cigarettes to the guards in exchange for the guards not beating them and not sicking dogs on them. When GI generation soldiers, and specifically airmen who flew in bombers and dropped bombs over the enemy, and for example, American bombers would depart from England on a given sortie, as it was called, a bomb run. They would cross over the English Channel and above Europe, where Germany, their enemy, sat, and Italy, their enemy. They would drop their bombs and then fly back to England. On their outbound trip with their bomb bay full of bombs, they were not permitted to smoke cigarettes. If a cigarette happened to be uh, jostled loose and fell on the floor, it could find its way to the bomb bay and blow up the entire plane. The only time they were allowed to light up a cigarette was after they had completed their bombing run, had turned back home, and were directly above the waters of the English Channel, which were controlled by the Allies. They would fly out and they would see the enemy shoot down their brothers in their planes right beside them as they flew out in formation. They saw their buddies die. Can you imagine what that one cigarette meant to them when they had safely completed their mission? They were now back safely above the English Channel. They no longer had bombs on the plane and they could light up. That one cigarette meant they had survived another bombing run and where their brothers had died and crashed to the ground over Europe, they were alive. So cigarettes to the GI generation meant something beyond what we can comprehend. Not only that, but Hollywood, the movies, glamorized cigarette smoking well into the 1960s before the consciousness movement, as it is called, began. So that was kind of the GI experience with food and with nutrition of those many GIs who came back from the war, having seen horror that you and I probably cannot imagine. Many of them had no psychiatrist or psychologist they could turn to for help with what was going on in their head. And many of them turned to alcohol to try to blot out the horror memories and blot out the shaky hands. They would wake up 
in the middle of the night with nightmares, tens of millions of them all across this country in a cold sweat. So many of them drank too much and became alcoholics. Wow. Now we get to the post-World War II era, and the silent generation is just entering adulthood as World War II ends. By definition, the silent generation did not fight in World War II. Instead, they enter adulthood during a time of stunning prosperity and security and safety, and it is when America is taking off like a rocket ship and doing everything right, and our leaders stand for the highest principles. And suddenly now there is expendable income in every household, nearly so, still not yet for our people of color. Uh, And so now they can afford to eat out at restaurants. Now they can afford uh, the early beginnings of fast food, which is a novelty. McDonald's began really in the 1950s, and it was such a kick to be able to drive through and get a meal. So those, we were still pre-nutritional guidelines, pre-knowledge. And the silent generation also developed some bad eating habits. Alcohol was very popular, and it remained big. Now we get to the baby boomers. They were born from 1946 to 1964. They begin to enter adulthood in the mid-60s. And this is where the real meat cleaver, Dr. Yami, comes down on the before and after of nutrition and wellness. Now suddenly we realize cigarettes are bad, and now there is the beginning of a campaign to stamp out cigarette smoking. Uh, It is also when we begin to get nutrition conscious. The baby boomers are the world's first fitness generation. And as they enter adulthood across this country, suddenly construction companies are building this new thing called fitness clubs. And it was in the 1970s when the world's first fitness generation, which had popularized the jogging and the running movement, is now in adulthood. That means they're not on sports teams anymore, but they want to stay physically fit. And so the 70s is when everything began to change as the baby boomers reached adulthood. Gen Xers born from 1965 to 1981, they come of age in the 80s when nutrition and wellness information and science are now advancing it even more. Gen Xers benefited enormously as the first generation to enjoy girls' sports on a widespread basis during their school years. They were the first girls for whom it was feminine to perspire, to sweat. Before that, women hadn't done that. That was masculine. For Gen X girls, they were the first to be able to lift weights and develop muscle definition. Before, it had been too masculine. So Gen X women especially hit the nutrition and the wellness tidal wave just right. The men of their generation and in boyhood are regrettably the first to become very sedentary with the arrival in the early 70s 
of the video game phenomenon. And the boys take a different direction with wellness and nutrition. The girls are out running track, and the boys are in the living room exercising their thumbs with video games. But by that time, smoking is now taboo. It's still existent. There's still 25% of the country smoking. But our awareness is rising. The millennials come of age and go through their school years primarily in the late 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. With all of the nutritional information available to them, they nonetheless become our first generation of obese children. And here's what ganged up on them. Their mothers and fathers, for the first time, were dual career moms and dads, and suddenly the American family unit was time poor. And what that meant was no more mom fixing square balanced meals at home. Everybody sits down to dinner. This is when fast food just exploded in this country. And dinner became burgers and fries and Cokes. Not only that, but our nation's elementary and middle school and high school systems, in order to make more money for the school system, now began leasing space in their cafeterias to fast food vendors. So instead of those kind of distasteful, but nonetheless nutritionally balanced meals that we always got in a cafeteria line, now suddenly we have a choice of going through that line and getting boring food or going over there and getting pizza and burgers and fries. This is also when the nation's school systems, for the first time ever, began putting vending machines in the hallways of our schools. Sugary, soft drinks, candy, chocolate. Beyond the millennials' control, they were ganged up on by the adult world, and they entered adulthood obese. But lo and behold, this wonderful thing happened. Millennials in adulthood have placed a premium on wellness and nutrition, and that is why we have seen our fast fooders. It's why we have seen our supermarkets. It's why we've seen all food vendors now going to healthy. And that's to accommodate our young adult millennial generation. So they are an enormous generation like the baby boomers, and they have clout in the marketplace, and they want healthy. So that's why we're getting Whole Foods and all of the other uh, grocery stores. And a nice thing has happened with the millennials. They're getting trim and healthy again. Our next generation has come of age during all of this. They really have no excuse for not being especially healthy. Our schools now get it. And if they have vending machines, they're now vending uh, oranges or peaches and more healthy drinks. The cafeterias at lunchtime are better. The parents of the world now get what fast food can do to you. So our next generation, which is probably going to be called Generation Z, uh, should be our healthiest generation ever. Wow. Wow. So fascinating. 
And I have something to admit, Chuck. I have never been a fan of history. It always seems so boring to me. I'm just going to be honest. But I love psychology. I love psychology. I think it's so valuable. And I think that this generational studies, it's the intersection between history and psychology because it explains so much. But what I love the most about it, and it actually brings tears to my eyes because as you were talking about the GI generation and what they went through and how they developed this attachment to the substances, to the cigarettes, to the alcohol because of what they had been through, how their minds were shaped during that time. It also helps us understand how we develop some of the habits that we develop. And it allows us to have not just empathy for ourselves, but other people and other generations when they have developed, they have grown up with values that really influence their decisions. It's just so incredible and so fascinating. Well, I was working in Italy with the United States Navy. And I arrived there for the first time. I made several trips. And I was met by a female psychologist. And their job, and this, by the way, was in the late 2000s when our nation was in the heat of the battle in its war against terrorism. And our troops were very stressed out. And she told me, I used your first book. My first book came out in 2008. And she said, we've been reading about the generations and our counseling team has enjoyed a 50% improvement in its outcomes with our sailors and with their family members who are experiencing a very long list of behavioral problems, such as addiction, sexual assault, domestic violence, um, and, and a long list uh, obesity. And she said, do you think you could develop a training program for psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, anyone who works in mental and behavioral health and train them in the generational differences? So I came back home to the States and I developed a half-day program. My degree is in business. And I had worked very heavily with the nation's Veterans Administration hospitals, training them in other generational strategies. I called the San Francisco Bay Area VA hospitals. I said, I've got something new. Let me send you some information. You tell me if you'd like the training. And they did want the training. So I went out to Andrews Air Force Base, which is between Sacramento and San Francisco. And they brought in all of their mental and behavioral health clinicians to an auditorium on the base. And for the first time in my life, I presented the world's first program in generational behavioral health care strategy. And when I finished, and I was up on a stage, I looked at them and I crossed my fingers and threw my arms up and I said, you have to tell me, I have no idea if this stuff can help you. Well, thankfully, it was a very enthusiastic and unanimous yes. And so I've moved around the country now and I provide that training. And it all gets back to what happened during our formative years. What were the core values we molded? And now what so far has been our passage in adulthood? And let's look in the mirror. What, as a member of my generation, what are the unique strengths that I inherited from those formative years, times, and teachings, which were beyond my control? I was a kid. 
and what weaknesses did I inherit by simply being a member of that generation and coming of age with the times and teachings that I did. And one of the great things about this topic, Yami, when people are struggling with a problem, and maybe it's overeating, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's cigarettes, what what a presentation of generational dynamics does is it takes everybody off the hook. Mm -hmm. And what they all say is, oh my gosh, I now realize that I'm doing this in adulthood because of what happened to me in childhood over which I had no control. I was a kid. And when you take them off the hook, the defenses drop. And now they're saying, okay, teach me and help me. It's no longer Chuck telling you you're wrong. It's Chuck presenting the generations and them going, oh my gosh, that's right. I did go through that during my, yes, I did mold that core value. I see now that I didn't have much control over, hey, I want to improve, get me there. Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly how I felt after I watched your presentation a few months ago. I am at the end of Generation X. I'm 1979 is my birth year. And I was a latchkey kid. You talked about Generation X and the the changes. My parents were both full-time workers. I was a latchkey kid. And I was also trained to be very independent as a female. You know, I knew from the beginning I was going to be a doctor. That was no problem. I knew I had to do a lot of things for myself. But one of the things that I developed, one of the habits that has haunted me for many years of my life is emotional eating and overeating. So I would go home after school. I would do my homework. I'd get bored. I'd sit in front of the TV and I would eat and I developed this habit. But whenever I heard your presentation and now I see some kids in some of the younger generation now that may be forming similar habits, it makes sense. When you are an unsupervised child by yourself, you don't know how to entertain yourself. Food is just accessible. It's stimulating. It's easy. It's so easy to develop that habit, but it did. It kind of took the pressure off of me that there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a bad person. This was something that developed out of the circumstances of my life, which was very common in that time. You're exactly right. And two things about what you just said. You are what is known as a cusper. You were born near the cusp where two generations come together. And what we find is with people who are born within one or two years, either way, older or younger, of where two generations' birth years begin and end, that it seems to be some kind of a sweet spot. I've had so many Gen Xers, your generation, say, I was born at the end of Gen X in the beginning of the millennials, or I was born at the end of the boomers in the beginning of Gen X, and I feel like I got the best of both generations and none of the bad. It's like a sweet spot. Now, here's the other thing about your generation and especially nutrition. Yes, you grew up independent, and yes, food is a companion when your generation had less companionship, especially after school, than any generation in American history. Um, The point is, you developed a habit, and you developed independence, 
And here's what we find in business. I train Gen X leaders or leaders to be in Gen X leadership strategy. Only for them, only a Gen X audience. And what I tell them is, and this applies to nutrition, when you Gen Xers are struggling, when you're having trouble with anything, maybe you're an executive and it's a decision for your company. Maybe it's personal and it is wellness or nutrition. You grew up so independent. Will you ask other people for help? And I'd love to tell you I was bright enough to have come upon that on my own, but I was training a Gen X audience in Denver. And I presented, and it was the Gen X woman who raised her hand and an and executive to be. And she asked that. She said, I wonder. When our generation is taking its turn at the top of America, and for Gen X, that will be essentially the 2030s and the 2040s. That's when your generation, Yami, will dominate the decision-making positions in American business, government, education, and religion. When you need help, will you ask for it? Well, I know I will now be, but I had to learn that the hard way, (laughs) you know, because I was definitely younger, a few years back, felt like I had to do it on my own. And if I didn't do it on my own, it meant there was something wrong with me, you know? But I think I had to learn that actually I can succeed and I can produce and help people better if I ask for help. Well, here's another one about your Generation X. I do formal focus group research and I brought in a group of Gen X women. They had been born and raised in different parts of this country. We brought them into a formal focus group facility where it was being videotaped and audio taped. This was was just for my own use. I do it for clients, but two-hour session with Gen X women, young Gen X women, old Gen X women. And I threw this question out. When you were in school, what did you think of group projects? (laughs) Well, the group had been very thoughtful about its responses. And when I'd ask a question, they'd usually ponder it a bit before they answered. With that question, the room just erupted and they all said the same thing. Oh my God, I hated group projects. The thought that my Gen X grade was going to be at the mercy of other people. Now, just older baby boomers, just younger millennials love group projects. But you came of age uncommonly independent, uncommonly self-reliant. And so there's just, and by the way, that showed up in my work with the military, a San Francisco psychologist who attended that training session I mentioned earlier, told me, she said, I do group therapy projects with our veterans who are really hurting. And she said, until I heard your training program, it never dawned on me that the baby boomer veterans in our group projects are leaning into the session and rolling up their sleeves and really participating. I had noticed before that certain veterans were leaning back and weren't contributing, and I've now identified them as Gen Xers 
what can I do? And I said, have a separate focus group for your Gen X veterans and tell me what happens. And within a couple of weeks, I get an email that simply said, OMG, with lots of exclamation points. And she said, when these Xers knew they were surrounded only by their generation, the floodgates burst and they suddenly started opening up. It was night and day. Wow, that's incredible. So what I hear you saying is that learning about our generations, learning about the values that we were molded by, that we acquired during that time, and some of the behaviors and the habits that we develop, it's not the the end all be all. We can learn from this. We can take this and we can use it as a jumping off point to improve our lives. You're exactly right. And until the year 2000, in other words, for the GI generation, for the silent generation, um, and for a portion of the baby boom generation, generational study didn't exist. We didn't have this tool to help people understand each other. When I do a Gen X leadership training program, I tell them, we're training boomer leaders, but they are already in leadership and they're learning this while they're already in the position. You're getting it in time to do something about it before you lead. And that should change your leadership profoundly. Here are Gen X's leadership strengths, and I list them. Here are your generation's likely leadership weaknesses, and I list them. Now, what can we do to maximize your strengths? What can we do to minimize your weaknesses? And that is the same with nutrition and wellness. As a member of the millennials or Gen X or the boomers or the silence, what are my wellness strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where did they come from? If I know where they come from, then I can deal with them. I can get them in front of me and see them and do something about them. I can maximize my nutritional and wellness strengths and minimize the weaknesses. And what generational study and strategy and training does, it helps you to get yourself out there in front of you so you can see yourself for the first time through a very different lens, a generational lens. And that's what we get with those, oh my God, moments. And that's thankfully what we had with the Yakima Town Hall. So many people emailed afterwards, and I've done this for years, and it's thankfully been the same everywhere I've gone. It, the topic just has, take me out of it as the speaker, the topic itself has this extraordinary wow factor. Yeah, it, it's something that helps us come together because we feel like we're part of a group, but at the same time, it helps us understand ourselves individually as well. Well, let's talk about coronavirus and your thoughts on how this pandemic is affecting the soon to come, potentially Generation Z. Sure. Well, let's all just put ourselves back in high school. Let's say we're a junior or a senior in high school, or let's say we're in junior high school, because in in middle school, junior high, that's when our awareness begins to grow beyond just the neighborhood in which we live, the school we attend, and the church we attend. Now, uh, we start to take courses in world history, 
and we start to get a sense of America and the world. So if you're a junior in high school, here's what you've probably seen. Mom and dad have lost their jobs. The economy, which as a junior in high school, gee, I still don't know much about, but all I hear from mom and dad and all I see on television is the economy in America and the world is collapsing and nobody seems to have come up with a solution. So those kids are going to grow up with a fear for their own physical safety. I can take perfectly good care of myself, but I can be blindsided. Now, the same fear for physical safety occurred with the millennials with the school shootings. I didn't do anything wrong. But there I was in my school days in the 90s, and all of a sudden I find that I have to walk through uh, a metal detector to get into my school, which I always thought was safe. So that's one core value that will come out of this. We don't yet know how that core value will influence our next generation's decision-making, but it certainly will. What today's school-age kids probably have not formed a finished core value on is, how do I feel about my government's handling of this coronavirus? Now, at the moment, if we took a snapshot today, those high school kids have heard by and large on the mass media, the federal government is handling this very clumsily, Congress and the president. But our state governments, our governors, look pretty good. So maybe they will trust state government, but not the federal government. Um, whenever this ends, those young kids are going to pass through formative years having worn masks. How will that influence their core value about sitting in groups in the Yakima Town Hall in a local restaurant? How comfortable will they fear about, feel about the safety of their food, which in a restaurant is being prepared back in the kitchen by people who might or might not be wearing masks, but they can't see them. They want proof. So they're going to have their career years slowed, just as millennials had their career years slowed by the Great Recession of the mid-2000s. Uh, our next generation is probably going to take an economic hit that might last through their 20s before our economy, the world's economy, and their own jobs and careers can catch up. That is likely to slow. Uh, the age at which they get married, the age at which they feel they can afford to have their first child, the age at which they feel they can afford to purchase a car instead of lease a car or buy a used car, the age at which they feel they can buy a house. All of those industries are probably going to be negatively impacted by Generation Z's core values as they enter adulthood. And there are many others, but that's kind of a sampling. Yeah, that is so important to understand as you know, these kids grow up. My children now are 10 and 15. 
And it's just, this is a huge thing. But I think what's really interesting about it is that it's not just affecting the United States. It's one of the first times in my whole life, because I didn't go through a world war, you know, that I feel like I'm in it with the entire world. Like it's one event that we can all identify with in the whole world, you know? And so I think that makes it a a little unique too. Well, and you're exactly right. And that brings up one of the positives that hopefully will come out of coronavirus. It happened with the GI generation when they were passing through the Great Depression and also the World Wars. The reason that the GI generation led America so honorably and so nobly and so compassionately, they cared about everybody, not just the richest few is because from those wars and that Great Depression, they developed this blockbuster core value of, we're all in this together, so let's truly take care of each other. So in the Depression, in one house on Main Street, a family might finish its dinner, and they might have one leftover pork chop that nobody ate. Throughout this country, on every street, the moms of America would put that pork chop on a plate and they would walk it next door to their neighbors who might be hurting more than them. And there were just a million and one everyday kindnesses like that. And so, and it also happened in World War II when two GI soldiers were about to walk into a dark cave on a Pacific island, knowing that inside there were enemy soldiers waiting to kill them. Or in Germany, when two GI soldiers hastily dug a small hole in the ground, a foxhole it was called, and they crouched into it and prepared for a firefight with their rifles with the enemy, and the enemy was only 20 feet away. In those caves, in those foxholes, all of those 16 million troops knew that they had to have each other's backs, and they did. So after the war, one of the soldiers who had been in that foxhole goes on to become the president of IBM, or General Motors. That guy who had been shoulder to shoulder with him in that foxhole and who had his back now is his janitor down in the basement. Do you think that GI generation president could lay off that janitor? No way. We're in this together. And that's why employment was so stable. A GI president would never think of sending American jobs overseas. We're all in this together. And we'll get that out of coronavirus. I don't know the extent to which we'll get it, but there will be for today's kids forming core values, a sense of, hey, there are things in which we have to pull together. Yeah, I agree. Definitely because they're seeing it modeled for them, the generosity, people really giving from their heart, loving each other, taking care of each other during all of this. So I, I really hope that that's one of the positive things. Chuck, what do you wish more people knew about generation? Well, simply that an understanding of generations 
through training should now become a permanent filter in our brains. Right now, when we interact with another human being, we have these other filters in our brains. Am I talking to a male or a female? Am I talking to a Caucasian or a minority? Am I talking to someone younger than me or older than me? Am I talking to someone with a high degree of education or less education? Filters like that that we already process in an instant when we are interacting with another human being. If we now put that generational filter in and say, I'm now, as a millennial, I'm interacting with a baby boomer. What do I know about baby boomers? And when you run your conversation with that baby boomer through that generational filter, and you'll get very fast at it, you then have a much richer, more meaningful interaction with that boomer. Now, this happens as an example with nurses in hospitals. I train nurses. And when they are trained in generational strategy, and they always have the patient's age on the chart in front of them, a nurse can go in, a 25-year-old nurse can go in and say, I'm talking to a silent generation 85-year-old woman. Now, what did I learn about her life passage? What did I learn about her expectations for the care that I give, the words that I use, and the courtesies that I show her? And they're different from those of a Gen X patient. It's that generational gearbox. And it, if we understand generations, we will find that we use that understanding in every human interaction that we have. It will be easy. It will be comfortable. It will bring us more closely together and it will be magic. I love it. That is, oh, that's so beautiful. And it warms my heart and I can't wait. I'm going to get your books. I'm going to learn more about this because I want to have that filter. I want to be able to apply the understanding of different generations to bring me more empathy with others. And I just think that's just so beautiful. Well, Chuck, I want to know something about you. We've been talking about generations, but I want to know what your personal habit that you have that you're most proud of, how you developed it, and how do you maintain it? Well, I'm probably proudest of the fact that when I stumbled upon this idea that generations was important, and I tried to convey that excitement that I felt to my friends and my relatives and to my neighbors and anybody who would listen to me, all I got back from them for 15 years was blank stares. And I much later saw a kind of a down and dirty video in a small meeting room of Microsoft founder Bill Gates and this was a way back when video. He was just having a meeting with two or three other people. And Bill Gates was trying to describe what he saw and felt in his head and in his heart. And he kept describing it and he would look at their faces and they didn't get it. And he finally pounded his fist on the table and he said, you guys just don't get it. But he stuck with it. and. 
my mother thankfully gave me my stubbornness. My father gave me my compassion. And I, during those 15 years, I had to decide for the first time in my life, am I right and everybody else is wrong? Golly, surely that can't be the case. Surely I'm wrong and everybody else is right. Uh, I knew that because I was going from age 35 to 50, pursuing something that didn't exist, working part-time jobs only so I could work full-time on this, I was sending myself into financial ruin during the time period when most people are making more money, starting to save for requirement. And I spent most of my 40s periodically thinking about suicide. I would never commit suicide while my parents were alive. I would never hurt them. But I realized that if I was going to pop out the other end of this generation's thing that was in my head and find out I was wrong, it would be far too late for me in life to ever financially recover. And that would mean that when I reached age 60 or 70 or 80, I would be forced to live such a wretched life that I would not want to stick around. And I don't have children. I'm not married. Uh, and so this came down to me looking in the mirror and say, Chuck, do you believe in yourself? And I kept saying yes. And it kept getting scary. I kept going more in debt. I kept thinking about not committing suicide now, but just studying the concept of it. Can I do it if I need to do it? And Finally, one day, the telephone rang, and it was a call from Washington, D.C., from the Speaker's Bureau, and I had no idea then even what a Speaker's Bureau was. My prior career had been in sports casting on radio and television, but I had left that to pursue this. I had no resume whatsoever. And a woman said, can you come into Washington and talk about the generations? And in that nanosecond, 15 years of fear, terror, self-doubt, the most miserable 15 years of my life came to an end. So I gave my first speech in Washington, and in that first year at age 52, when, I, when my net worth was minus $55,000, I owned nothing but my clothing. I stayed for free at my sister's house. I gave five speeches in my first year, and I grossed $11,000 in speaker's fee. And three, year late, three years later, I had gone from five speeches to 70. And I was living out of airplanes, and it had worked. So that the ability to look at yourself and say, do you believe in yourself? was tested like I never could have imagined. And when I popped out the other end, I felt a contentment and an inner peace that I never could have imagined I would ever in my life feel because I'd kind of been tormented up to age 52. Uh, so that's a very long answer to your question. Wow, Chuck, thank you so much for sharing that. What a story. But what I'm getting from that is that you had to validate yourself for 15 years. That is a long time 
to not get validation from other people. You are resilient, you are strong, and you're persistent because you knew in your heart that you were doing the right thing. And that's what you wanted to do. That's what you were passionate about. I admire that so much. So that's incredible. Well, I didn't know if I was right. And that's, I didn't know if I was right. And that's what made those 15 years terrible because I realized I wasn't going to let go of this and I might be wrong. And it wasn't until that phone rang one day that 15 years of doubt drained out of me. But until that time, it was just as miserable as miserable gets. Wow, what a boot camp. Well, you know, you were doubting yourself, but I think you wouldn't have kept going if there wasn't a part of you that really did believe that you were on the right path, you know? Wow, that's an amazing story. Well, Chuck, this has been so awesome. I know that people are going to want to learn more about this because we can only just barely scratch the surface in one hour. So can you please tell my listeners, how can they connect with you and what services that you provide? Sure. Well, I provide training in all generational strategies and for all generations. And I give uh, keynote speeches for both Pure Entertainment, which is what we did at the Yakima Town Hall, uh, but also for business meetings. And I train business, government, education, religion, and any other sector that involves human interaction in generational marketplace, workplace. Um, psychology, fundraising, a full list of generational strategies. They can Google me. There are only about two or three Chuck Underwoods that should pop up. But if you Google Chuck Underwood generations, you can find your way to my website, which is genimperative.com, short for generational imperative, uh, and contact me that way. My book, my 2018 book is available on Amazon. And it uh, is entitled America's Generations in the Workplace, Marketplace, and Living Room. And uh, there are DVDs available that you can find on my website from a series of PBS national television shows about the generations. But my phone number and everything else is on my website. Great. And I'll make sure I have all of that listed in the show notes so people can contact you. And just so you guys know, Chuck is... Such a great speaker, so captivating. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time he gave the talk at the Yakima Town Hall here. So I enjoyed it so much. Chuck, can you please leave my listeners with a call to action for the week? What is one thing that they can do this week to improve their lives? Learn more about your own generation and especially your generation's strengths and weaknesses that came from your formative years over which you had no control, get them in front of you, maximize your strengths, minimize your weaknesses. And then when generational study has proven to you that it works, get to know the other generations because it will make your interactions with other people so much friendlier, so much collaborative, and just so much richer. Oh, amazing. That is a wonderful call to action. Chuck, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work you do. And especially thank you for believing in yourself. This is very important, very valuable work. And I am so glad that I got to meet you. 
And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. You do the same, Dr. Yami. Thank you for your interest, and I'll look forward to our next time together. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli.